Sorry, every edit, every edit I have to make is because I'm Mike. Because. Every single one, every single edit is because I'm Mike. Hey everybody, welcome to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. Mike DiFilippo. I'm Joe Ryan. And we uh, we debated discussing this again on the show because it seems to be something that is just being talked about every day. But we uh, we felt like we had to talk more about the coronavirus since the last time we discussed it. Uh, things haven't gotten much better. Well, it was, it was bad. Have you guys heard about it, our listeners? <laughs> have, you, have you guys heard about coronavirus? You may have noticed there's a coronavirus. It's came out of uh, Asia, and that's a, it's a new thing. It's it's a little thing. You gotta you gotta deep real the you gotta you gotta go into the the later pages of the newspaper. To but hear this about was it. this was one of the interesting things that I remember. With it was you, me, and uh, my and Mike, and we did an episode. And if I remember correctly, we had to do an episode like a week and a half later, like saying, "Oh yeah, half of the stuff we told you in that it it changed." Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, that's, we it's it's one of the more interesting things, right? Is yeah. there was there were treatments that we thought were going to work uh, very early on that didn't, which is important to distinct, you know, to make a distinction between a treatment that we thought would work that did not work versus you know a treatment that we were lying about. Mm. But uh, as is right now um, in the United States, we have 173.5 million people that have been fully vaccinated, which is about 52 percent of the population, which is it's good. Uh, where we're recording, it is not great. Uh, in the state of New Jersey, where we're recording, we have about 5.4 million people who have been vaccinated. Uh, and Johns Hopkins is reporting uh, total cases, 38.8 million around. Uh, we have about 4.5 million deaths worldwide. And we also have close to, looks like 5 billion total vaccine doses administered, which is good. The CDC and Johns Hopkins is showing a trend. So we've got some peaks and naters that are going on with the actual cases and vaccines so generally speaking more people are becoming vaccinated which is really good that's what we want to look for that's kind of the treatment that we're we're hoping right prevention is going to be our first line but um as has kind of been the story for a while uh people are still resistant to vaccinations so let's talk about that for a little bit why do we think that people in general but why do we think that medical workers are so resistant to this this vaccine and this treatment dan we'll start with you I, I got, I, I don't know. I don't understand it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's too many of us and we deal in, listen, we like to sit on this show and we always talk about the literature and we talk about science and we talk about evidence-based stuff. And, you know, it seems that with this, it's just, it's a visceral thing. These are people have no problem getting a, you know, getting vaccinated for polio or tetanus or, you know, all these other like really horrible diseases. And nobody thinks twice about it. If you're, if you're going to travel to, you know, if you're going on a backpacking trip in South America, you know, you go to your doctor and you get shots for cholera or whatever. There's, there's all sorts of things that happen. If you, if you join the military, for God's sake, you, you get, vaccinated for well, if you want to go to college yeah if you if I, you want to go to a public school you know yeah you have to have you have the you have to have pneumococcal now i mean it's one of those things it's like i i don't understand what's going on with this one in particular i don't understand the visceral reaction to it and i don't understand why well i think that a lot of it was you know the anti-vax rhetoric tends to be you know change the schedule there's too many vaccines there's too many of this there's too many of that um 
you know, and it's because people have seen science and technology evolve, you know, in, in their lifetime. So they get uncomfortable with it. But one of the biggest arguments that I've seen is that it's a, it's a brand new technology that doesn't work. And that's, I, that's just not the case. But we get, but here's what I don't get. These say, these are the same people that'll watch a commercial on TV about a brand new drug on the market and ask your doctor if it's right, if, if it's right for you. Ask side your doctor, here's 400 side effects that you might get. Side effects include dry mouth, upset stomach, spontaneous combustion. And they're like, <laughs> Hey, maybe I should be on this. I, I, it's, I it'll cure your heartburn. But it'll make your right foot and, fall off. And listen, I'm totally fine with, with modifying vaccine schedules. I, when my kids were born and Joe's going through this with his kid, you know, I didn't like four shots in a, in a visit. I don't, I think that's too much. So we, we spread them out. We moved them around, but we got them, you know? Well, so, but this is, this is part of the conversation I think is interesting where it's four shots just feels like a lot, but it's, it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's what's, what is the correct number? Well, I, I think you know that strikes at the, the heart of it too. There's, there's, I, I think a lot of people, when you talk about, individuals that don't want to get the COVID-19 vaccine are, are all sort of lumped together as uh, anti-vax. When in reality, it's a mix of vaccine hesitant and then true anti-vaccine people who are, for whatever various reasons, on all sides of the political spectrum yeah. against getting vaccinated. So, you know, and initially when the vaccine came out, I could understand like general public hesitancy towards getting a new vaccine, especially one developed with such a timeline as the COVID vaccine was which we all know now was, you know, not really, I mean, it was expedited, but not like at a ridiculous pace. There's a lot of science and data to back up the safety and efficacy. One it, might say it moved at warp speed. Dear Lord. Um, I'm actually taking a sip of my beer right now because of that. But this is what we want to talk about though, right? So the, the concept of this vaccine being new is also misleading. This vaccine was able to be developed through the technology with CRISPR and Cas9, and I mean, Mike, you might be able to discuss this with with some more authority than us, but the, this technology is not new. We knew about this when, you know, the first SARS virus came around in the early yep. 2000s. That's what I was going to get at, is that this this progress had been going on for a while. It was just at the right time in the right moment. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, mRNA vaccines have been in some capacity researched and being developed since, you know, the late 80s, uh, early 90s. And variously through all types of viruses you can think of rabies zika virus cytomegalovirus coronaviruses previous to covid-19 so um but but back to the the split as far as like vaccine hesitant and anti-vax you know i think there's overlaps in both the communities as to why uh, people choose to be that way uh historically it's in populations that have been disenfranchised in some capacity by the medical establishment and have rightfully so questioned uh, just carte blanche statements like that, like get this vaccine or else, or, you know, you must take this vaccine or else this is going to happen. Uh, because, you know, these these communities have been so abused and used and totally forgotten about by the medical community outside of just experimentation, um, which can be a whole series of podcasts on itself alone. And oh, I absolutely. encourage anyone yeah. to like look into that sort of stuff about, about America's dark history. Yeah, just Google Tuskegee real quick. Yeah, Google Google Tuskegee experiment. You'd be stunned. But yeah, so and I, I can't blame that. That's some capacity of it. And this is just for a general population, not just healthcare providers. And then the anti-vaccine, I think, is a mix of very like interesting groups. You know, it's it's not 
I have Republican friends who like to say, oh, you know, Democrats are usually anti-vax. I have Democrat friends that say, oh, Republicans are usually anti-vax. You know, it tends to be people on the fringes where the views start to overlap and things get extremely blurry. You know, what's really far left could be considered really far right and vice versa sometimes. So, you know, you get those groups. And then now I think we're seeing a very different from historical vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax. I think now we're seeing the emergence of a very different group of individuals that are sort of riding, in, in my opinion, like this liberty train as to like why they don't want to get the vaccine, which, you know, now it's, it's you know, this is America. We have our personal liberties and freedoms to choose to do what we want. And this is why we're not choosing to get the vaccine. So that's kind of, and in my experience, the type of individuals I see, it's usually um, historically disenfranchised communities that don't feel comfortable getting a vaccine for, for various reasons, but they're not closed off to receiving the vaccine. And then the other group of individuals I get are just like looking to start a fight with you from the minute you walk into the room and are only in the hospital because something is actually going on that they need emergent medical treatment. So I think it's just a very dichotomous, or not even dichotomous, it's even more than that, more split than that group that's very going to be very difficult to overcome to even begin talking about convincing them. Like, I don't even think a lot of these individuals are at the idea to even think about being convinced to get the vaccine. So it's going to be right. a huge hurdle. And that's where we get into, you know, how to convince people, you know, to change, you get into the, the contemplation, pre-contemplation, you know, intervention stage and things like that. But I mean, the reason that we're talking about vaccinations so much is that there's not really a lot of treatments that we know will work. Um, I have in front of me a comprehensive list of known treatments that will actually help to cure COVID. So, we, I mean, we know that there's there's not a lot of treatments necessarily that work once you get over a, a certain point in the illness. And it's it's something that we're starting to see more and more in the field is yeah. we don't see a lot of people who are at say day plus one of their illness where they just, you know, they might have like a prodrome. They just generally don't feel well. Um, you know, we tend to see people around like day eight or nine. So yeah, that's what, that's what I've been seeing. Like day eight to 10 seems to be the point where they call 911. And these are, these are the people with the pulse oxes in the forties and the thirties. And right. they're just, they're, they're some of the sickest non-dead people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, right. and, and it's insane. Um, and so let's, let's get into some of the pathology on that and why we actually see that. So when we have people that actually do get SARS-CoV-2, the reason we're seeing them at day eight to 10 is typically speaking, like you can be hypoxic to the tune of around, you know, a SAT of 90 by like day two or three, right. but you know, you can walk around with a SAT of 90 and, be perfectly fine and not really realize it. Mm -hmm. But while that's actually happening, you know, in your lungs, you're actually developing this kind of protonaceous uh, exudate that is making it difficult for you to actually breathe, right? So you don't have your oxygen exchange to the alveoli. And then once you start getting into like days eight to 10, that's when we start seeing people who have ARDS. So we're already kind of missing that important treatment window right in the beginning, right? We don't have, there's, there's some, small data sets that support giving antihistamines um, early on in the treatment, something like fexofenadine um, or uh, different H2 blockers where you can actually reduce that exudate in the lung. But again, it's, it's a small data set um, and it's not something that has made that much of a difference necessarily. 
And typically by the time you get into the hospital, you're usually more toward the right side of that bell curve. So your, your treatment and you know the chance of being discharged are much lower. So the other thing is, do we think we're still seeing the same hesitancy uh, as we're recording this in August 21, as we were seeing in August of 20, where people were a little bit more resistant to call 911 and go to the hospital? No, I think we're seeing less. Um, I think people are willing to go to the hospital. Um, it used to be every case someone was asking us, is it safe to go to the hospital? Now, I think, and and this is this is a testament to, you know, the people who've been working in the hospitals, everybody from, you know, the nursing staff, physician staff, all the way down to the environmental services people. Um, they've created a an environment of safety that really is commendable. It's going to be one of the success stories when we're all said and done looking out for this. Um, and not for nothing, if you're walking by walking through your hospital and you see your, you know, your environmental services people or your, you know, the uh, the people who clean up the rooms afterwards, you know, give them give them a thank you because they they were unsung heroes here. Yeah. Um, well, just real quick, that because that's an important kind of sidebar that I think we should point out that you know, all the signs that you see about our healthcare heroes and all that other stuff, like it tends to talk about, you know, sometimes it talks about EMS, but it tends to talk about nurses, doctors, whatever. The people that are working in environmental services at the hospital, aside from being a crucial part in the healthcare system, there there is not enough money in the world that we can be paying these people to do the services they do. And frankly, it's, it's a lot of work that none of us would do willingly. And it's something that we kind of, I think we have to acknowledge where, you know, we do all like the, you know, the messy stuff and then they get to clean up our mess, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think that it's important to acknowledge that if there is one group of people that isn't being recognized the way they need to, it's definitely, you know, just house service people. Yeah. But know. getting back, getting back to what I was saying, I, I think people are willing to go to the hospital now. I think part of when it comes to the ill COVID patients, the ones that we've seen in the field, Kevin and I, they're scared because they know what's coming. They've seen it. They watch TV. They know that a lot of people going to the hospital don't come out. And that maybe is contributing to part of the problem because as you said, in the early course of the illness, when your SATs are low, but you can be helped, this is a disease where time is of the essence. You want to get that assistance early. And then you want to go hard at this in the beginning. It seems like as opposed to waiting until you're gasping for air, your sats are in the 40s, and we're trying everything we can do to keep you from being intubated. Um, I know that some of the doctors um, on FOMED were talking about sick, uh, you know, COVID positive people should be given a pulse oximeter for for their their home, and they should go to the hospital if they're below 90 for more than five minutes or after exertion. Um, and I, I, I'd like to see the data on that. I'd like to see some retrospective stuff once this is over, if early warning systems like that could have helped. Um, you know, as it comes to the field, one of the things I want to talk about with this is, you know, the helplessness that you feel in the field. Um, we don't have a ton of stuff um, that we've been able to do for these people. Um you know, IV fluids don't do anything. Um, we don't have a ton of stuff. We give them oxygen and, you know, you, you put them on a non-rebreather and the 41 becomes a 60, maybe. Um, I, you know, some of the things that we've been doing and some of the stuff that I've been thinking about, like listening to all this, like we've been putting people on CPAP very early. Um, we've been using that pretty effectively um, to improve oxygenation, recruit lung tissue. We know it's good for people. It doesn't hurt them per se. 
Um, yes, you can do it with a viral filter in line. Um, I'll snap a picture and put it up on the show notes. Um, it's doable if it's something that you have in your jurisdiction. Um, we're lucky in our agency, our shop, we've got the uh, disposable ones, which generate a good pressure um, and they're single use, which is great. Uh, we use them for a lot of things, but right now that seems to be our best intervention. We get in there, they've got a low pulse ox, they're in distress. We put the CPAP on and it seems like it helps them. You see a decreased air hunger, you see um, they do tend to feel better. Are we helping them down the road? I don't know. Um, I've been thinking we don't carry it. We carry solumedrol, but I was thinking maybe corticosteroids. If we were giving that in the field, is that going to make a difference? So I'm going to throw it to you and Mike to, to let's, let's hash that out and see if there's any other therapies pre-hospital that we can do. We know we don't want to intubate them. We want to keep them from being intubated as, po- as much as possible. Are there any things that we can be thinking up? about pre-hospital that you can go back to your clinical people and say, Hey, maybe we should start thinking about this. I know CPAP is definitely one. Well, and, and also just as a reference point, before we get into it, there was a time early on in the pandemic where we were just intubating people very early. Um, and the thought process was if we can intubate them early enough, then, you know, we can increase the oxygenation, recruit all the lung tissue, all that kind of stuff. And then, um, it seems like as time went on, that was less effective, um, you know, because it, it, again, this is one of those things where, you know, the the treatment options we have are limited uh, and it's kind of just throwing a bunch of stuff up against the wall and hoping that something sticks. Um, and it, it's part of the problem. And we're going to talk about moral injury and like that later on, but it's part of the problem with delivering medicine to this particular thing pre-hospitally is our contact time is only about 20 minutes. You know, um, in some jurisdictions, it's much less in some it's much more, but generally speaking, we're not with the patient long enough. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you think about what tangible changes can we make to these people, it's it's real tough. You know, our our arsenal only has so much in it. So, um, Mike, I, I tend to be on board with with CPAP. Um, I tend to be on board with you know some beta agonists early on, and uh, there's some data that we have about steroid use. So, run run through some of that. Tell us what you think about that. Yeah. So, just a couple things I want to touch base on. One, low pulse ox triggering point for me. So sorry, everyone's got to hear me all triggered. triggered. So there's there's just as a baseline refresher for everybody, I'm not calling out anybody in this chat, but just saying this like baseline refresher. So pulse ox is below like 88%, 85% are, are really not a reliable indicator. Um, if you have one at 30%, it may be equal to one that reads at like 75%. All it just tells you that there's profound either hypoperfusion that's causing an inaccurate read, even if it has a good pleth on the uh, the monitor or that someone is profoundly hypoxic and needs correction. So regardless, you know, cause every COVID patient, it's like everybody's favorite thing to be like, oh, I had one that came in at 27% with a good waveform. <laughs> oh, I had one with 21% with a good waveform. Like, I'm sure everyone's like heard it's the new summer challenge, the, new, the summer TikTok challenge. Yeah. <laughs> when, when in reality, like it, it doesn't matter. Like it's, it's, it doesn't have like great, like reliability. The, the curve falls off dramatically at like 88% as far as to like the reliability of the reading of your pulse ox below like 85 to 88%. So just a little side topic trigger point in mind that I always like to point out because it's a good educational thing. I mean, if you have pulse ox go from like 35% to 65%, like in Dan's like story, like, you know, at least you know, you're trending in the right direction. You just can't say like how big of an effect size you've had uh, yet based off your therapy. And and just um, a quick note, Mike, because this and this is something that we've we've talked about a lot. There are people who will still have other illnesses 
during this pandemic. So you may see people who are chronically hypoxic, who are always below that level. Now, obviously they're going to be affected more should they get sick, but I don't want people to forget that like, you know, someone with COPD might be just kind of ambulating at 91. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I'd like to bring up is discharge parameters from the emergency department and when people get pulse oximeters uh, and the utility of pulse oximeters. Uh, I can say that it's still like an actively researched area, the efficacy of pulse oximeters. Um, but if my memory is serving me correctly, I think there was a New England Journal, Journal Watch article from like 2020 some point that was very, very small that just showed that of patients that received a pulse oximeter and were told to come back with criteria, which our criteria at our shop is if you're hypoxic below 93%, you stay persistently hypoxic at that point, either with exertion or you're having symptoms and you feel hypoxic to return to the ED. And that's our admission threshold is if someone's having exertional dyspnea or exertional low pulse ox below 93 with a good waveform and then sustained, they get admitted. So that's essentially our return criteria for patients that we discharge. Um, but it's, it varies at other places. I know other facilities use 90 as a cutoff, others use 95. Like, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but, um, patients that were discharged home with pulse oximeters, uh, realized to come back when things are getting worse, when the numbers are getting worse. And from this study, I was able to pull it up. It's a June 26 of 2020 in journal watch. It's called pulse oximetry and outpatients with COVID-19. It was a small study where patients got pulse oxes. Of the patients that returned, 10% of those outpatients were admitted to the ICU and 2.6% died at follow-up. So essentially what it tells you is like, you know, you can't from this study, cause it's so small, like glean any like mortality data or preventative data, but you know, it shows you that there is further research needs to be done because it's a low risk intervention. It costs the hospital a small amount of money to give someone a pulse ox, but the return on somebody coming back when they're ill is so high. So that's why I think it is still a useful thing. And I actually think that's an area where paramedics can have a lot of utility in the sense that if you feel triage somebody, you know, RMA them, they don't want to come into the hospital, you eval them, but you know, you carry extra pulse oxes in the truck to hand out to them and you give them that return criteria. I think that's a great area for where the regular paramedic can go in an EMT and help those patients. And then if you're in a system that has a, a robust community paramedicine program, have the community paramedic follow up in like two, three days and see how their respiratory status is doing. That's something we do here in the city. We have a nurse practitioner follow up for those patients. And, and oftentimes like they come back after the, the NP gets them on the phone and like they're profoundly dyspneic talking to us and they have a pulse ox of 89 and all this other type of stuff and they come back and they get admitted. And this is one of those programs that EMS organizations can get through grant writing and things like that. Like this is a very, I don't wanna say it's an easy intervention but it's certainly an accessible intervention. Right. And pulse oxes, if you think about it, I mean, if you look on Amazon or any of the other places, I mean, it's 15 bucks and they're they're not terribly expensive. It, it seems like to be low risk, low cost intervention that yeah, there's people that carry people. their own pulse oxes all the time. How many times have you been on a job and someone's like, oh, I got my own personal pulse ox? Like I carry they, my own in the hospital. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah I, like may or very, may not, very... I may or may not have one or two. Of course you do. <laughs> I do. No, but they're, they're, gets, they're very a discount easy with, with every flashlight he buys. He gets a, a discount. <laughs> Here we go. Actually, it's a combined with a flashlight. Thanks. <laughs> you got to hit the button on the end. That's how you see things in the dark. So, um, Mike, but, let, let's talk about this Decadron thing. Um, yeah. So, I, I was just going to run through kind of like the the recommended therapies. So, there's there's a ton of therapies that are out there for COVID. Um, it's sort of kind of like equalized out as to now. 
you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, every hospital was sort of doing things like very differently because, you know, no one essentially knew like how to treat these patients. Um, now that we are sort of like living with this pandemic for, you know, 18 months already or however long it's been, um, there are some steadfast pillars that are recommended therapies as more data is coming out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the ones that you see all the time is, is corticosteroids. So there was a lot of studies that came out in particular studying Decadron. Um, but it's, it's steroids in general are recommended for anybody requiring supplemental oxygen. So your COVID patient who is just COVID positive, mild symptoms, no symptoms, um, if they're not requiring oxygen, then they don't get steroid. Like there's no survivability benefit or data benefit. Patients subjectively feel better after receiving steroids, um, but there's no, no data to suggest to put them on steroids. So for Decadron in particular, there was the big trial called the recovery trial that came out. And this was uh, dexamethasone in hospitalized patients with COVID-19 in the New England Journal. So 2,100 patients received either six or 12 milligrams of Decadron. And the study was essentially to see what dose patients would need. And there was a, um, if for patients receiving supplemental oxygen, 30 patients needed to be treated with Decadron to prevent one death. So that's something in medicine that we call the number needed to treat or the NNT. That's not and bad. An NNT of 30 is excellent. Um, I forget what like aspirins is or like, let me look aspirin, aspirin is in the 60s, I believe. All right. So the number needed to treat for Decadron for COVID patients is uh, 30. So 30 patients receive Decadron to prevent one death. And as a comparison to show you how good of a number that is. So the lower, better. So, you know, like a one in eight would be great because you only treat eight patients to see a benefit. Um, aspirin in people with STEMI is one in 42. So it actually has a more profound effect in COVID patients as it does like aspirin does in STEMI patients. Which is something that we give all the time right, with exactly. no, no qualms. Exactly. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of steroids. I feel like that's also a place where paramedics can really like uh, be very beneficial if you have a patient. And I, I feel like we, we touched on this, but the same thing in the emergency department, a majority of patients I see already know they have COVID. They show up to the ED. They say I was diagnosed with COVID like a week ago. I'm feeling like really crappy. That's why I came in today. So if that's your patient profile, you have a known COVID positive patient and they require supplemental oxygen in the ambulance, they should be receiving Decadron. I know a lot of, a lot of projects cover or, or use Solumedrol. I don't know the data for Solumedrol um, for COVID patients. So I would recommend using Decadron. And if any medical director is listening to this, like, I think that's where I've seen it. I've seen, you know, you know I know people have Decadron on the ambulance because I remember studying for it for the NREMT. So I, I know it's a medication that we're, we're allowed to give as paramedics. So it's, you know, it's I, an NREMT medication. It's in the formulary for a lot of places. It's yeah. And there's, and we're, we're taught about dexamethasone a lot. And again, dexamethasone is something to the tune of 10 times stronger than, uh, than Solumedrol. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that, and again, without having data, just completely anecdotally, I would think that it would be obvious that Decadron would work better than Solumedrol. Do we, I'm sorry, do we talk about the half-life of Decadron as opposed to Solumedrol? Well, no, but I mean, we know, we know that Decadron's half-life is much longer than Solumedrol. It's like days over hours, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, so we can, we can use that for a much longer, or we can just, you know, and again, it's a, a small treatment that will have benefit over a long amount of time. Um, and then Joe, Go ahead, Mike. Oh, sir. No, I was going to say the other thing I wanted to jump on as far as like treatments and where paramedics or pre-hospital people come in is with uh, monoclonal antibodies. 
So again, just as a refresher point for everyone's bio 101 class, like antibodies recognize and stick to specific proteins that float around in the blood or that are attached to viruses and bacteria. They're very specific, meaning an antibody will recognize only a very select amount of things or just one thing. They won't attach to a lot of different things. So when the body encounters something, the immune cells build antibodies to it so that the next time the body encounters it, they can attack it. So these have been studied in COVID patients. So, you know, they're manufactured against uh, antibodies that are seen on the COVID cells or cells infected with COVID. And they're used in both the treatment and prevention of COVID-19. But the reason I wanted to bring it up today is I saw, you know, there was a state recently that authorized their paramedics to administer monoclonal antibodies to patients. So it is currently recommended for patients that are asymptomatic, meaning they recently received, they recently received a diagnosis of COVID. They are either asymptomatic or very mild symptoms. Or I, I should backtrack. It's not asymptomatic patients. It's for non-hospitalized patients with or without, with or without symptoms. So there is just some survival benefit that has been shown to decrease risk of progression of disease in these patients that do receive uh, monoclonal antibodies. But it sounds like that's a narrow window. It, it really sounds like that's got to be done in certain populations right in the beginning. Otherwise, it's not going to do anything for you. It's certainly not going to do what the vaccine would do for you. So I think, well, absolutely. But, uh, you know, at my facility, we don't recommend administration of monoclonal antibodies if someone's already like four to five days out from symptoms or from their first initial positive test result. So, so why is that? Because the efficacy drops off afterwards. Okay. Um, in, in, one, in one study, I think when the viral load was like at 10 or 11 days, there was no change in outcome. So, I mean, the thing is like, if you go back to the, the pathophysiology of, of COVID, you know, really the big thing you're trying to prevent is se severe death, or I mean, all death is severe. Severe death. Severe, <laughs> severe morbidity and mortality. As right? opposed to so, the more mild death. That, that, so when Michael Jackson died, I was watching the news and it was like they suffered, he suffered a severe cardiac arrest. And I just made that up. Yeah. Not, not the minor type. Yeah. The, ma the major type. So the routine the whole, cardiac arrest <laughs> happens all the time. But the whole thing with these antibodies, the whole thing with the monoclonal antibodies is to prevent that progression of severe disease. So going back to the pathophysiology of COVID, if someone's going to develop ARDS, if someone's going to develop, you know, cytokine storm, so to speak, and become like profoundly septic and obtunded, it's going to happen by that like six to eight to 10 day window. So, you know, your chance of reversal or pre pre prevention of progression is, is low that everything comes with risk benefit ratios. So, you know, things, every medication that you give from oxygen to normal saline to lactated ringers to epinephrine has side effects. So same thing with monoclonal antibodies and Decadron and all that sort of stuff. And granted the, the side effect profiles for those things are very low. They're very low risk. They're safe, but they are real. So, you know, it always comes down to risk benefit at, at day 10. If you have someone who is presenting an ARDS, you're not just going to add an additional medication for no reason if there's no proven benefit, or at least most people won't. Some people will. Well, right. And risk benefit is kind of the the big picture of what we're talking about anyway, right? Like on any given day, I think it's you have like a one in 27,000 chance of dying for any reason, you know, and we've had six people who took the J&J &J vaccine out of something like 400 million shots who had blood clots. So people freak out about that. So you always have to make some type of calculation. And I, I think that Generally speaking, the calculation is uh, is more toward being vaccinated. Um, Joe, I, I do want to get some insight as to what we're seeing from from Uncle Sam's side on this. So, what what are you seeing 
in, in your shop? So what recently has occurred as, as if I'm pretty sure it was covered on the news and everything is, um, the secretary of defense issued the order that all active duty, uh, military members, as well as reservists are mandated to receive the vaccine. Um, there has been stipulation as to whether our commander in chief will issue the order for, uh, civilians or not. Um, there, there hasn't been any real movement um, on that yet that I've heard of or seen anywhere. Um, I was just actually reading a thing. I'm trying to find it. I'm sorry. Uh, so, yeah, Secretary of Defense's orders are, you know, I, I really like the way he put this, honestly, is, um, you know, their whole point in doing this is to protect the force, you know, those of us that are, or those of the military that are protecting our country and to protect the American people. Um, and yeah, I was reading an article from uh, the army um, and it talks about how they're handling it, which I, I really actually could appreciate. Um, they talked about how if a, a soldier dis disagrees or doesn't want the vaccine, they can actually sit down with a, uh, a group of supervisors or a uh, higher up and have that conversation as to why they don't want it. Um, but it's still a thing where when you signed onto the military, you gave up that right. And, you know, you're ordered and that's how it is. It's in the oath that you will follow all orders from those above you. So um, there is no really, there's really no choice after that. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot on social media of uh, people quitting jobs and everything else because they're being mandated. That's not an option for our service members, um, you know, to an extent. Um, you know, on our side and, and my little shop, if you will, um, you know, we were given the vaccines. There was a uh, talk about the, the third dose, if that becomes a thing, um, what's going to happen. And it, it kind of, we haven't received much guidance on that, except for uh, our, our head boss uh, said that if, uh, if that becomes a thing, uh, it will go in military first and from there. So but that, that's really, you know, the guidance that I'm getting is pretty much covered by the news anyways. So, okay. Yeah. So it, it seems like it's, it's affecting kind of everybody, every branch, but uh, none of us are pediatric experts. And as luck would have it, we have Dr. Peter Antevi here to talk to us about how things are affecting kids down in Broward County. So we're going to throw it to Dr. Peter Antevi. Hey everyone. This is Dr. Peter Antevi joining you today to talk about COVID in children. So I know that many of you are listening to this either have children or know people who have uh, children, maybe you have a niece or a nephew. And I think it's important to get the facts straight of what's going on. Now, in my opinion, we look at this as two different pandemics. Uh, and why do I say that? In the first part of the pandemic, when we talked about COVID, we heard that kids aren't getting it, they're not spreading it. And really what we heard of in kids was that MISC, which is a multi 
system inflammatory syndrome that happened in children that landed them in the hospital weeks later. Well, now with Delta, things are very different. And that's where I think you have to put your mind in a different place. What do I mean by that? It means that whereas children weren't getting sick with COVID before, primarily they're getting sick with COVID now. If you look at the data and there's a weekly data report that comes out uh, from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and they've shown that on a weekly basis, at the end of July, we were at 38,000 cases of COVID per week. Here we are not even a month later, and we're already at 180,000 cases per week. So it shows you that Delta is very different in that you're getting kids infected primarily. Now, interestingly, if you live in a state where the adults are under-vaccinated, those are the states where kids are getting more infected. You might be listening to this and say, well, what does that matter for me? How does that, how's that gonna change my mind? Well, there's some good news here. Number one is that there's very, very low case fatality rate, meaning that very few children have died. Now, even one child dead, in my opinion, is not a good thing, but the total count through the entire pandemic is 400, which is, which is very low, thankfully. However, the hospitalization rate is 1%. What does that mean? 180,000 kids per week, that's 1,800 kids hospitalized. Come to my emergency department, come to my ICU, come to my county. Uh, last week, we had zero pediatric ICU beds available because Florida has some of the highest numbers for children with COVID in the country. So yes, children will do well unless they're the 1% who actually end up in the ICU. So what can we do about this? Number one, if you're an adult, go get vaccinated so you don't bring it home to your kids. Number two, if your child's 12 and over, get them vaccinated so they don't go to school, which just started for us in Broward County uh, on the 18th. They're gonna go, get, uh, go to school, get it from their teacher or their friend and bring it back to you at home. You don't want that either. We're now hoping that children wear masks. And it's been a big debate in Florida, but we actually hope that uh, children are wearing masks. And the surgical masks we now know aren't any good because of Delta is a thousand times more contagious than the prior uh, virus was. So therefore the experts are now saying, go get a KN95, which is like the layperson's N95. They're 80 cents. You could wear them for weeks. You don't have to buy new ones every single day. So I'm sending my kids to school with a KN95 so that they protect themselves as well as others. Lastly, the vaccine is coming out for kids. Unfortunately, it hasn't come out yet under the age of 12, either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. So uh, if you look at the data, you could see that not many parents have gotten their 12 and over kids vaccinated. And it's predicted that probably not many parents are going to get their under 12-year-old kids vaccinated. But I'm going to give you one word of caution. Kids who get COVID, although they don't die, they get long-haul COVID. They get myocarditis. They get respiratory issues. They're on nebulizers, flow vent for months at a time. They have difficulty exercising. So if you think that uh, you know, getting COVID is just okay, Let's hope you don't end up in that bucket where your child ends up going to specialists and having brain fog and headaches. And we're seeing many, many children, tens of thousands of kids, which you don't hear about in the news, unfortunately, who have symptoms related to long COVID. I mean, 
the more sexy thing to talk about is how many people are dead or on a ventilator. But the more practical thing and the most phone calls I get every day is, what do I do for my kid who has all these symptoms? And the answer right now is we don't really know. So be smart about it. Follow the data. Do the right thing for your child and your family together. This has been Dr. Peter Antevi. Thanks for having me. And our thanks to Dr. Antevi for coming on the show. So now let's talk about some of the, the sillier stuff that's out there. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> well, listen, so I, I wanted to get through that first half and and throw it to Pete just so, so we could kind of get the serious stuff out. Like, it, right. you know, there's it, it still is a very serious thing. You know, um, there's there's no pediatric ICU beds in Broward County. There's no pediatric ICU beds in a lot of places in New York. Mike, how is your shop doing with uh, with ICU? Uh, I, I mean, Northeast, I don't think is getting hit as hard in specifics with COVID as other parts of the country. So, you know, ICU capacity is is high, but it's not like impossible to get someone to the ICU. Right. Um, a lot of times it's an issue of, of staffing ratios, which, you know, that could be a whole podcast on itself about people just leaving the field um, due to COVID burnout or, you know, other opportunities that exist out there with traveling and making money with doing traveling or contract jobs right now. So, you know, there definitely are places though, like I have colleagues down in Florida and I have colleagues in Texas who are working, who are calling other states to see if they can transfer patients for like ECMO. Um, Cause literally there are zero available beds or zero beds that can do ECMO within like two adjacent states worth of places, which is unheard of. You're even seeing social media doing that. I'm, I'm seeing yeah. docs that I know on Twitter and they're putting out something like, "Hey, listen, I need an I need a ICU bed for a patient. Is anybody help me out? Throw me a DM." It's like, well, I know, and obviously, like it's it's anecdotal, right? Like these are all these are all case by case things. But I mean, it's, it is not uncommon to see someone be like, "Listen, I you know I sent someone. I'm in Florida, and I just shipped someone to Missouri." Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think the other the problem. Place. I think the other problem now with this surge of COVID, as compared to the initial. I mean, the initial surge that was seen in New York City really taxed the system. And that was that was 100% COVID. And at that time, you didn't have a lot of patients coming into the hospital with a lot of other things. Like, you can pull up anecdotal stories of doctors and nurses saying, like, I can't remember the last time I saw a STEMI patient or a stroke or anything like that, because the only people coming Everything to the hospital was COVID. COVID patients. Yep. And people were just afraid to come to the hospital. Yeah. Now, now you have patients coming to the hospital for regular routine things. Plus all the COVID surge that's happening. So it really is like, even with extra resources, even with uh, like surge management criteria, all that type of stuff, there's just not enough people and not enough space to manage these patients. And it's, it's a real nightmare because now it's not just one disease that's overtaking a population. It's regular disease plus the surge of this, you know, new disease. And it's really taxing the system is very unique to this surge as opposed to the initial. And so, also you're, Sorry. Also, you're getting, um, it, it's different for us. They're sick. They're younger. They're sicker. The first wave was like a lot of the nursing home patients, a lot of elderly, a lot of comorbidities. And now it seems like we're getting the sicker, healthier people and they're, they're just consuming resources. I mean, you know, because you're not, listen, you're not going to put a 30 year old on comfort care. You might put an 85 year old on comfort care with poor ADLs. You're gonna throw the you're gonna throw the house at them, um, and I think that's different. That's what's made it different too. But I agree that all the same things. Like I remember having a respiratory distress patient, and it not being COVID, and we were like, "What do you? 
it's just CHF. Oh, this is great. I haven't seen one of those in years. This is great. <laughs> well, so it's, what's interesting is um, Spike Lee has put out a new series on HBO and you know, it, it's talking about essentially how, I, I guess it's going to be a series on how the world has changed since nine 11. It's a whole thing. But um, the first episode was very much about COVID and specifically how it affected hospitals and EMS workers. And I remember watching it and I, I was, it, it was almost like a flashback because you almost forget, right? We all suppress like traumatic memories. Um, but, you know, they were talking to FDNY EMS and they're just like, everybody we had for months was COVID. It, like uh-huh. it was every patient over and over and over again. And it's New York City. So, you know, and we've, we've talked to, to Mike Greco about this too, you know, where their numbers are doubling throughout the day and everyone they have is really, really sick. And I think that, you know, we talked about like moral injury and burnout. And I think it gets very kind of frustrating where everyone you see is very, very sick with this thing that we can't do anything for. And I think over time, it, it kind of, it can drive you away from the profession. You know, we're seeing that with EMTs, we're seeing it with medics, we're seeing it with nurses. You know, I, I, I would say that you're probably even seeing it with travel nurses who are kind of chasing the dollar for a minute. And then it like, it just gets old at what point, you know, at, at some point you have to, you know, treat yourself and, and get away from all that. There's, you know, there's another angle to this, Ed. When this first started and we were in the first two waves out of, I don't know, we're up to the seventh wave, whatever right. it is. Um, <laughs> the first wave is over. Yeah. Um, we were all, I got this feeling, and this is just me and it's anecdotal. I got the feeling that everybody was in it together. We were all in this. This was this unseen, un, unknown disease that was. Yeah. We're healthcare heroes, going, Danny. Yeah, I know. Thanks. I saw the sign. Um, you know, and we just, we went through all of this and it's different now because now we have this, like you said, this moral injury and this burnout. And you're also seeing that people that you would assume, like if there was, when there was a vaccine available, like you would jump on this and we're seeing people in our, well, you see that in other countries, right? You see that in other, in other countries where a vaccine becomes available and they line up around the corner to get it. And, and we're we're the only country we're like oh, I don't know man there might and be we're, microchips and we're in there. seeing right and we're seeing trained healthcare professionals and we talked about in the beginning that have completely discounted science have discounted the risk benefit and are choosing literally choosing to not do what they know is right I think it's causing a divergence in our in our population. Sure. In our in our profession, because you've got these people, you've got people on one side, and you've got people on the other, and like you said, that moral injury, that that compassion fatigue. I mean, I'm seeing it now. Like, I don't want to. Like, like, I don't want. Like, why do I? I how can I feel empathy for you when I know you got sick for something you didn't do? It's like a drunk yeah. driver. I, I'm going to treat them. I'm going to be professional. I'm going to use evidence based care. I'm going to do everything. But this isn't this is your fault. You did this. Right. And I think that's, that's central to the frustration that we all feel is that this is now it's to the point where, you know, it's a preventable illness and it's going to get really interesting now that there's FDA approval for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, we're we're recording this on August 29th, 2021. So things might change, but you know, now it's kind of like, all right, well it's approved and you should get it. And there's insurance companies who are going to start denying claims. Oh yeah. Because you, you, you got a, a preventable illness. Like you didn't and have to do, have to do that. 
And just before, just before we move on, like, you know, I know that there's people on social media say, oh, well, you're unprofessional because, you know, what do you do with people with diabetes or what do you do with people with heart disease or, you know, liver disease? Like you, if you could have prevented it with one small thing, you know, you're, 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 you're equating apples and pomegranates here. This is one thing is something you could, if there was a diabetes vaccine, everyone would take the diabetes vaccine. Like like we can, we can stop. But but here's, but that's why I use drunk driving as a thing that is an eminently preventable event. You can choose not to drink and drive. You can choose to get over. You can choose to take public transportation. You can choose to walk the hell home. Well, and that's, that's that stupid mask debate that comes up too. Right. Like, right. It's like, well, you know, why, why should I wear a mask? You're like, well, no, why would you wear a seatbelt? Yeah. And I'm, you know, and I'm stu- like, it's, and it's, you're, you know, like you're, you're protecting yourself. And I'm people. stunned. I'm stunned that public safety professionals who know better, you know, you got cops. I know cops who will not leave the station. Okay. Without wearing two guns and a goddamn bulletproof vest but they will not get the shot that is more likely to kill them. And if you go to law enforcement memorials pages, or you look at law enforcement deaths this year, the biggest thing was COVID not getting shot, not getting hit, not, not getting in a car accident was COVID. If yeah, you I were think a firefighter, half of deaths yeah, of law enforcement. if you were, if you were a firefighter and you said, and you told people I'm not wearing helmets or I'm not wearing my bunker gear in a fire, they'd think you were insane or I wouldn't wear my mask. These things are unthinkable. Okay. Well, I mean, and, well, and also, and Joe, and, there's there's old school firefighters who still won't who won't jump in with like an SCBA so, or masks, right? Well, it, not so much the SCBA mask. A big, huge turn that we've seen in the fire service um, recently was, and I'm I'm talking within the past five years, maybe. I can remember when I started twenty years ago, and Danny, you and I, and ha- have had this conversation. It was a cool thing to be the salty guy with the burnt up lid, the gear that looked like hell. You know, you went home with your face covered in soot. My old man was a fireman and he talked about how it was a cool thing that you'd get done fighting a fire and you're riding the back step of the engine back to the firehouse having a cigarette after you just got discharged from the hospital for smoke inhalation. Look how much phlegm I coughed up, guys. Right. Now there's a big turn in the fire service, you know, and obviously there's departments that have taken it to an extreme um, is, you know, washing our shit, deconning everything that we have because it's been proven the higher cancer rates are because of particulate exposure. Um, more right. specifically, the, the points around our necks, around our, our, our face that isn't covered by the, the face piece, um, you know, and that's one of the things they realized was the particulates were getting through our hoods. Um, mm-hmm. So... I now have at my department a hood that blocks the particulates, you know, and we have to wash it after every gear, after every uh, fire. And yet I still like, like Danny was just saying, I still have guys that, you know, the same thing. They'll wear the SCBA. They'll make sure they're bundled up tight on every run, but yet they won't wear the mask. And, you know, number one, you're, you're putting mean, the rest right, of us. You mean the, you mean the your, surgical mask, right? COVID mask. Yeah, okay. the surgical mask. Okay. Um, by not doing so, not only are you, you know, affecting yourself and whoever you come in contact with, but it's every one of us that are living with you for that 24 hours 
you know, I've got a wife and a, a nine month old to come home to. Right. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to jump on board with what Danny was saying before too, like how at the very beginning, it was scary as hell for me because, you know, we don't run too many EMS calls where I work um, now, but I didn't run into any COVID patients. So it was almost a surreal thing for me, but it was the factor of, I was coming home to a pregnant wife who at the time was still working the medic truck. And it was just that, that hard slap in the face when her first COVID positive patient or suspected COVID patient, she came home and, you know, got in the door and stripped down and went right to the shower. You know, and that kind of was a slap in the face for all the years that I've been doing this and the things that I've been in contact with and everything else, there was never that extreme. Yeah. It was just, okay, wash my hands, wash my uniform, and that's it. And that was scary as hell. But I agree with you, Danny, and it may be cliche, but it was almost like after 9-11 again, yeah. where we were all together. We were all united. And, you know, you saw the, you know, thank you, heroes, all that stuff, right? And, yeah, it's it's nice. But, and then, again, look at us now. You know, you look at both sides of this, and it, it's how our country has gone. And I look at, you know, like how you were saying with the social media with other countries. You know, I see people talking about, well, this country, they had one case pop up, and the entire country went on lockdown for, you know, the 14 days or whatever, and look that at that. That's New Zealand. Gone. New Zealand. Yes, thank you, yeah. And they've done and it a couple times, so and awesome. their numbers are still low. Imagine that. I think it's yeah. just like a, a, a uniquely American problem, though. I mean, our, our culture here uh, it very much emphasizes the the individual. Um, and, not, and and that's a, that's a Western culture thing. It's not just uniquely American, but, right. yeah. you know, that, that Western culture has really been born out of the United States. So it's very deeply rooted in our our belief system if you're raising this country. So I, I really think that, you know, the initial surge happened, people got scared, but then people, you know, started living their lives as normal again. And now are seeing like, you know, it is safe for me to go outside with the mask on. It is safe for me to go to the store and touch things and just make sure I wash my hands. Like there was a lot of things during that initial surge. Like I remember being, and I'm a doctor. I remember being panicked as hell in the supermarket that someone got like within six feet of me, even though we were both wearing masks and no one was aerosolizing anything and touching. I remember like touching a bag of cookies because I'm a fat ass and I need to enjoy it during my quarantine and being nervous that, oh, shit, did someone with COVID touch these cookies? Maybe. And am I going to get COVID if I bring this back to my house? And, you know, remember that phase where people were letting shit yeah. sit outside their Dude, house I, for four I, days or whatever? Yeah, I had friends that were taking like Lysol wipes to all their groceries. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think people saw that initial wave and saw what things people were doing and the the craziness of it like we look back now and everyone's like oh can you believe we did that like you know now we don't do that and that's just how science progresses right we learn more we we say you know this does not happen this way be just more careful about this and i i think people draw conclusions from that that you know it is and and it is safe to do some things not safe to do other things and I also think it's a lot who you hang out with and where you hang out. Like there are communities that got absolutely fucking destroyed by COVID. And those individuals from those communities are probably the staunchest mask wearing first in line for vaccine people I've met. And then there are communities like, you know, generally speaking, more rural communities in the United States, generally speaking, more right leaning communities in the United States, where just by virtue of their community being so distanced did not have a very strong COVID surge. 
and still to this day, like even though they're having relatively high COVID numbers, are really not seeing a huge impact in a lot of deaths in their community. So for them, it's really like this big thing that, you know, fits into this whole media trope of, oh, the liberal cities are exaggerating this. This is the thing that's not going to happen in my home. You know, why is it that I have to be out of work because someone in a, in a city thousands of miles away from me is having an infectious disease that's not present here? So I, I think you're seeing, and I'm not saying that's the only example. I think it's just ballooning out of this whole big thing in the United States where, you know, there's really no country like ours that's right. as diverse in both uh, economics, diverse in uh, backgrounds, diverse in even layout. Like I, I can't think of a handful, you know, maybe a handful of countries, Russia, for instance, where it goes from like really dense city to super rural where you're not going to run into anybody. Like well, and that in, all, Europe, in Europe, that lays into, into other countries that are like that, yeah. not different states. Well, and that speaks to the, the social science aspect of it too, right? Like you're, most people are, some type of aggregate or amalgam of the five people they spend the most time around, um, which, you know, bodes well for the four of us, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you, if you're spent, if most of your time is spent around Tucker Carlson, you're, you're going to think different things in the majority of the population. But one thing that I, I did want to, I did want to say before we start getting into some of the sillier treatments is one of my professors, um, shout out to Mary Rubush, who's never going to listen to this episode. Um, she had mentioned during one of our classes, like you have chosen to work in medicine. This is a decision that you made and you no longer have the privilege of ignorance. And hearing that just kind of resonated with me because it's like, you don't have to work in medicine, dude. Like you don't, you don't have to do that. You chose to do this. You chose to go to EMT school, to go to medic school. Mike and I chose to go to medical school because what? debt is fun, but you know, you, you've made these decisions and because you've made those decisions, you have to like, it, it's literally your duty, right? It's that premium nonsense thing that we all learn about the first day of our EMT training, which is the first it's, it's do no harm, right? That's the entire goal and not preventing what is now a preventable illness is antithetical to that very thing. Sure. Right. It's literally it's the opposite of what you what you learn on the first day of class. Before we get out of here, um, I do want to talk about some of the treatments that are out there because <laughs> I feel like uh, we'd be doing a disservice to our audience not to. Um, hydroxychloroquine is kind of an older uh, meme medication, if you will. I'm going to start calling them meme medications, but memes. Yeah. Um, so hydroxychloroquine uh, does nothing to reduce COVID. And but can you course, get it at tractor supply? We're going to get to it. All so. Right. So, uh, Mike, take take thirty seconds to just talk to us about hydroxychloroquine, and then we'll we'll move on to the the more banana stuff. So there there's hydroxychloroquine, which has become famous in the United States, and was given initially during the initial COVID surge because there was a lot of preliminary data out there that suggested that it, it worked, uh, you know, in some capacity for COVID patients. So chloroquines is a class of medications. So chloroquine, chloroquine phosphate, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, they're anti-malarial medications, so they Which, have to be clear. COVID, not malaria. Just so, <laughs> but just so you know, they, they do malaria, have they, malaria. Is malaria is falciparum? This is coronavirus. They are different, <laughs> but they they do have immune modulating effects to the point that you know they are used in autoimmune diseases for treatment. So people do take in the United States hydroxychloroquine for autoimmune diseases because they don't have malaria. You know, you see it given for malaria in other parts of the world. But anyway, uh, 
Um, it was initially believed because of its immune modulating effects that it would be beneficial in COVID, but there have been multiple studies. And by multiple studies, I mean there has been a metric shitload of studies, as far as medical studies go, that shows the best evidence for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine is that it is not effective for COVID-19. And it can actually cause harm. It can cause people some issues. Um, and again, it go, always goes down to risk benefit. Hydroxychloroquine, even for people with autoimmune diseases, is not like, oh, we'll just start you on hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, it's not a benign medication. It's not Right, right. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of decision making to say like, okay, you've gotten to this point now that we're going to start you on this, you know, just be aware. So it doesn't even have any, it's also been studied because I know a lot of people take it prophylactically, prophylactically meaning, and again, just for everyone's own edification, not talking down to anybody, just because I didn't know what this word meant until like a year and a half ago, uh, <laughs> prophylactically meaning that you take it to help prevent something or in anticipation of an exposure of something. So it doesn't even have any benefit in prophylaxis. So there's no pre-exposure prophylactic component of hydroxychloroquine. There's no post-exposure prophylactic component of hydroxychloroquine, and there's no treatment component of hydroxychloroquine that suggests it's effective. The only thing it'll do is just make you feel like crap and, and cause you to be immune deficient in some areas. So it's not a great medication. Not, not something you want in a uh, contagious disease world. No. Uh, well, well, right. And, but that's, but the that's one... the bigger concern, Danny, is that, you know, you could be not sick, Right. And then you could be taking HCQ for preventative measures and then get sick from that. And then you're also still susceptible to COVID. Like it's, it, you know, you're, it's an unnecessary and, type and of thing to do. The craziest thing about the whole hydroxychloroquine thing that, that I found for me was I actually, I read, I read this somewhere that, you know, like Mike said, it's treated for autoimmune diseases. Uh, lupus is probably the most common one that you, you hear people with lupus who needed this drug could not get this drug get it. because right. so many people were stockpiling it and getting prescriptions for it. I, I, I don't even know where to start. I, like, I would like to just make one quick comment. I, I think I may have said that hydroxychloroquine is an immunosuppressant. It does not suppress your immune system. It's an immune modulator. So it doesn't like make you at increased risk to get severe disease, but okay. caveat, sorry, go back to regular conversation. Well, and now, but that's the other thing is that now, you know, you worry about, and again, we've talked about this a bunch of times, there's other illnesses out there. So now there's people in ICUs that are occupying beds that can't be occupied by, you know, sick people. This is something that personally bothers me because you guys know I, I'm a three-time cancer survivor. There's people who get sick and need treatment who need to be in the ICU. Like that's not, you know, that you have to make room for them. And to just for me, conceptually to try and like block those people out of treatment because I didn't want to be inconvenienced is a bit too much for me. But um, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, ivermectin because this is becoming. Um, I it, So my first instinct is to say this is hilarious, but it's uh, apple flavored, but it's but like it's yeah, <laughs> but it, it's a uh, it, it's unfortunate because people are actually getting very, very sick from yeah. this uh, horse dewormer now. Again, I'm going to I'm going to add the caveat like, well, it's not just used for that. It has medical purposes. Of course it does. But if you're going to a feed supply store to buy your medicine, I'm I'm going to say maybe that's not the right place to be. So now we have people who are are taking ivermectin or who are uh, using it as a a lotion. Um, and again, this is all stuff you'll see on social media, which is why I think it's really dumb. Uh, but, you know, you'll have people report like, wow, I've got a bunch of worms coming out of me after I took ivermectin. I never knew I was that sick. And it's like, that is the 
lining of your intestines sloughing out of you. That's yeah, I mean, not, I, you don't have worms. You're you're literally shitting your body out. So so all of this stems from that in, that initial surge. So so there was you know, antiviral medications have been around for a while. I mean, they're used in HIV. Um, in AIDS patients. So, you know, there's this idea that, you know, COVID being a virus, you know, try antivirals. Um, Ivermectin is not an antiviral, but just for background. So try antivirals, which is what remdesivir is. And, and also for the record, most of the antiviral medications with HIV and like that are antiretrovirals and not actually just right. blanket antivirals. <laughs> like it's not, you're, yeah. you're doing it wrong. So, you know, the, the broader question to the scientific community then at the emergence of COVID was, you know, are there other immune modulating or anti, you know, bug medications, antibiotics, antiparasitics, anti-whatever out there that could have some effect on COVID. So there was a study that was done in 2020 in antiviral research called the FDA approved drug ivermectin inhibits the replication of SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. So from that study kind of really pushed forward this story that ivermectin has benefit in COVID patients. So ivermectin is an antiparasitic. It is prescribed to humans. It is also prescribed to animals primarily. Um, your dog's heart dewormer is ivermectin. Those little drops you put on your dog or the little gummy you give them is ivermectin, just for reference. Like that's what we give for our dogs to make sure they don't have worms shooting out their butthole when they're going poop. So, but the way it works is, or the way it was believed to work from that initial study is that it binds to host viral cells and suppresses them from replicating. However, there were a ton, so that's in, fuck, I lost my train of thought. We can edit this out. So that initial study in 2020 that showed that ivermectin may have had some benefit in patients with COVID was an in vitro uh, study, meaning like in the lab. In vivo means in living things or, or real people. So when it was replicated in vivo or in live human beings, there was no survival benefit uh, that was shown at all. So there was maybe like one study that showed that it made like progress people from having like mild symptoms. Um, but then there was a big uh, review article that came out that showed absolutely no improvement of symptoms, no evidence to suggest that it prevents or helps in any meaningful capacity the treatment of COVID. So that's why it's not recommended anymore. Why all of a sudden it's gained such traction in certain media outlets is beyond me. And the fact that people would willingly take what is primarily dog and horse dewormer, as opposed to getting an FDA approved vaccine is mind boggling to me that you would go out of your way to stand in line at a horse feed store to buy ivermectin, as opposed to going to any of the trusted medical outlets that are in miles of you is mind boggling to me. And, and just great. For, for the record, the argument tends to be because quote, we don't know what's in the vaccine end quote. And I'm dying to hear someone explain to me what they think is in ivermectin. Like you, you take things into your body every single day and you don't know the chemical composition of them. And frankly, if you did, you'd be worried about them because it's a lot of letters and numbers. E frosted and, flakes. Jesus. Yeah. Like, do you know what's in that? Well, but again, there's, Chicken there's nuggets. Come on. But, what but, are you doing no, here? But again, you can, you can ask someone if they are pro or opposed to the administration of dihydrogen monoxide. And people would say <laughs> that it's a terrible <laughs> idea without realizing that it's water. It's water. 
you know, like, and it's, and again, we could do a whole series on, you know, media manipulation and all other stuff, but. What are um, some of the signs of ivermectin toxicity? Cause that might be a good thing to go through because we don't, we don't so see this much. You're going I to have, you'll, have, you'll have pretty much your classic, uh, sort of like inflammatory response the biggest complaint you're going to see are people with like it's going to be abdominal pain um and they're going to report that they've been excreting worms they haven't as i said it's it's the internal lining of their small intestine nice, nice. um you know and it, like worms in humans unless it's a tapeworm are usually very very small um they look more like little guys kind of wiggling around um so if you treat a patient that said like, I pulled a three foot worm out of me, uh, odds are it wasn't. No, you didn't. If it, if they're not super scrawny, it wasn't yeah. a tapeworm. It was, it was probably something else, but. Ugh. Also um, like the ivermectin that people are buying from horse feed store or from dog stores is many times the amount of what the human prescription dose of ivermectin is. So yeah. by, by default, you're unintentionally overdosing on ivermectin and it's not like people are taking ivermectin and they're like 20 years old. Like right. the, the demographic that I keep running into that seems to be taking ivermectin is middle-aged, like fifties, late forties to elderly. And ivermectin interacts with a lot of different medications to decrease the efficacy of other medications or alternatively ramp it up. One of them being blood thinners. So like, you know, it, it's very dangerous to just start taking horse level doses of medication that you don't know what the interaction is going to be with the medications you take, as opposed to a safe vaccine. And I, I, I have personally run out of the energy sometimes to explain to people like the safety profile of vaccines. I mean, there's so much free stuff available on the internet to look it up that any layman can, can repeat it as to why it's a safe thing. Like you're really going to get ivermectin and poop out your intestinal lining as opposed to just get a shot in the arm. I mean, if you're or, or wearing a mask, tracking you, like throw your phone away. Like it's not going to be coming into your a shot in your arm. I mean, you being on TikTok all day, China and like the United States, oh, and God. Canada, they, and they, whoever they, else knows yeah. where you're at, like 30 million times a day. Yeah. Location settings on your phone that you're probably listening to this podcast on knows where you are. You, you know, I, I turned I, them they, off. They don't they don't track that. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm sure that that people get drone striked because of their iPhone. I'm almost, I'm almost fairly convinced that that's how you do it. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's talk about personal. Uh, we just, we just saw that he watched the create challenge, TikTok and these coordinates. Yeah. My FBI agent called me and said, really that site again, what are you doing? Um, but the other thing I want to talk about is people like in the healthcare and you, you touched on this Ed with, you know, you go into medicine, you choose this and you hear people like, well, this is my choice, my body, my choice. It's like you go to work, but and you don't feel the way about abortion, do you? Well, yeah, let's not even get there. But you don't even get to choose the color scrubs you wear. Yeah, you have people who tell yeah. you what T-shirt you can wear. Yeah, at work. you have to wear what, what we okay. tell you, you have to, to wear. wear. What we tell you to wear. You, you don't want to wear sneakers. Wear a, I bet you do. Wear a Van Halen T-shirt and sneakers and say my body, my choice yeah. at my job. It's it's absurd. And the yeah. people that are selling this to people are, are, I think they're just a special kind of evil. Like they just want to see shit burn and it's, it's tiring. Well, and that's, and, and maybe it's, you know, this is just one thing too far, but you know, you, you guys have done fire stuff. You're not allowed to have a beard. No. Right. Like that's, 
Wouldn't that that would yeah. be a personal choice, but no, instead you get to have a mustache. Not Joe. allowed to have facial hair. Not allowed to have I was at a I was at a job where my hair wasn't allowed to touch the collar or my shirt. Yeah. 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 And and that and that exists everywhere. Like it's and, and again, I understand where it's, you know, I've <laughs> I've taken all I can stands. I can't stands no more. <laughs> you know, but like having this this is a weird hill to die on, is is pretty much my it's my it's thing. And a, I stupid hill you know and i and i say that like quite literally this is a weird hill to die on like there's there's plenty of people yeah there's plenty of people every day there's another person who was anti this anti that my body my choice and you you check up on they find out like oh they're on a ventilator oh they died two weeks ago there's been four conservative talk show hosts in the last i believe month that Mm -hmm. have died of covid and their show was literally a everything was a conspiracy, you know, the tinfoil hat stuff. Right. It's killing people. Dude, Milo Yiannopoulos took a shot of ivermectin a couple of days ago and just started tweeting about like how sick he is. And like, if you like, okay, if you don't want to take advice from Anthony Fauci because whatever you think that he's, you know, compromised or corrupted or, or whatever, fine. You know what? You know what? Fine. But if you're not going to take your advice from an experienced physician, like, please don't take your advice from Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the, the overwhelming majority. And by the way, all the people that you're listening to, all the people who are like vaccinations are bad, blah, blah, blah. They're all vaccinated. Every single one of them. Uh, you know, all it's, you see that, that fact all the time, right? Like all living presidents are vaccinated. Most Mm -hmm. physicians are vaccinated, you know, so consider that source too, where it's like, if the person who's telling you not to get vaccinated is themselves vaccinated, you know, it's, it's that leopards ate my face kind of thing. Some of these networks, I would no doubt have a vaccine mandate for their employees. Dude, Fox News got sued for it. Fox News got sued to release their information. Everyone's vaccinated. And it got shot down. Uh, yeah. And no, it, no, it passed. Yeah, no, they, passed. They, yeah, they had to, this was a couple weeks ago. They had to release everything. So it's just absurd, but yeah, it's a, uh, this is something that we, we first talked about a, a little over a year ago. Um, we have tried to keep the show to stuff that's other than COVID. Um, and, you know, because of events that have happened around the world, we just haven't been able to, you know, we take no joy in having to discuss this over and over and over again. The hope is that our audience understands all this, but understand, guys, that, you know, one person can affect hundreds or thousands, uh, you know, downstream. So, you know, let us know what you guys think. Um, I'm, I'm personally interested to know what everyone's shop is doing. I want to know if there's, you know, requirements and, and things like that uh, for vaccination and how they're handling it. Um, and frankly, we also all want to know how you guys are handling it. How are you managing this? How are you dealing with the moral injury of everything? Um, and let us know what you guys think. It's over on productions at gmail.com, over on EMS on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and I mean, as I said, this is something that I, I personally, I want to hear from everybody. I want to know what they think, what's going on and what's changed. Um, and specifically people that are new into the field. You know, I, I think that our five-year uh, retention is probably going to drop because I think a lot of people jumped into this industry at just the wrong time. So let us know what you all think. We're interested to hear all of your opinions. And for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. 
I'm Mike DiFilippo. I'm Joe Ryan. Thanks for listening, guys. Let us know what you think. We'll talk to you next time.